All right, well, um, if you've been here regularly for a while, you know that we started this series um, of working verse by verse through the book of Galatians, the first Sunday of this year. It looks like we're going to end about the uh, very end of, of summer. And today we come to a wonderful text. We're going to be looking at Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. So go ahead and turn there. It's a wonderful reminder in the midst of Paul's warning that should bring us joy and hope. Now, remember, Paul wrote this letter to defend his own apostleship because rival teachers had come into the church in Galatia and were seeking to destroy Paul's image and message among them. But even more importantly, Paul's doing that to defend the truth of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. These, these rival teachers are telling the Galatians that they need more than the gospel. They need more than Jesus to be saved. They need to submit to the Mosaic law and they need to be circumcised. And Paul's writing this letter and saying absolutely not. He's reminding them of the gospel that he had taught to them. And today he continues in that, warning them about returning to the emptiness of the idols they once served. So go ahead and stand and follow along as I read Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to us that we can know about you and that we can know Jesus through it. And so we pray that you'd help us, that that would be true of us today, Lord. And no matter how we came in, where our hearts were set when we came into this room today, that when we leave, that we would know Jesus. We pray that you'd bless in that in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, verse 8, formerly, Paul says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, Paul's making a contrast here. He's contrasting their old life, the life of these Galatians, before they knew Jesus, before they had a relationship, before they had put their trust in Jesus. He's contrasting that with now their new life in Christ. And one thing that is clear throughout this book, but certainly here, is that in Christ there is freedom. In Christ there's freedom from what formerly enslaved these Galatians and kept them from life and love in Christ. Before believers are converted, before believers put their trust in, in Jesus, they are enslaved to false gods. That's what Paul is saying to these Galatians. Before you knew Christ, before you trusted in Him, you were enslaved. Now listen, life under the law, and that's what, that's what these rival teachers are pushing. 
Life under the law is characterized as one in which humans live under the domination of sin. Paul says in the letter that believers were imprisoned under sin. That's in chapter 3, verse 22. The very next verse, he says that the believers were held captive under the law and that they're enslaved under the elements of the world. He he writes that in in chapter 4, verse 3. But now they have been freed from the bondage that previously ensnared them and are no longer slaves. They're free. Those who do not know God give worship to someone or something instead of giving it to the one true God who is worthy of it. In other words, what Paul's saying here is everyone is a worshiper. Every human being is a worshiper. You worshiped before you knew Jesus. You worshiped gods that were not gods at all, he says. They couldn't do anything to help you. They didn't love you. In fact, they enslaved you, but you worshiped them. Formerly, he says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Everyone is a worshiper. We may not acknowledge it, or we may not even realize it, But our whole entire lives are lives of worship, giving our attention and our affections to someone or some things. And Paul's saying it makes a difference who or what we worship. It makes a difference who or what we give our hearts and our affection to. If we do not know and worship God the Father through Jesus Christ, then we are enslaved to gods that are not really gods at all. They can do nothing. We're not free. Only Christ, the Messiah, can set us free. That's Paul's message throughout this. He continues in in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Now, this verse is one of the greatest in the letter to the Galatians because of the truth that Paul declares here. It's a beautiful picture of conversion. It's a beautiful picture of someone coming to know Christ. Paul contrasts their former lives and their new lives in Jesus. You remember from last week, these are people, the Galatians are people, and we are people who now, because of Jesus and because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts, now cry out that God is our beloved Father. So it is It's true that believers have come to know God. It's true that if you you have a relationship with Jesus today, it's true that you have come to know God. Paul's not saying otherwise here. But there's a deeper reality. His clarification there where he says um, in verse 9, now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, that 
that clarification is very important. The deeper reality explains why. Why they know God's saving love. Why do they know God? And the answer is because God knows them. It's relational language. There is, a, there is a world of difference between saying, I know who that is, or, or I know about that person. There's a world of difference between that and saying, they know me. I'll give you an example. If, if I were to say to you this morning, I know Taylor Swift, I, that's the reaction I expected, right? <laughs> but if Taylor Swift says, no, 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 I know Tony Hall, that's a totally different thing. That's a, that, that, that brings about a different response in, in your mind and your heart, you're thinking, whoa, like, okay, I just thought he was, like, being Tony. Like, I just thought he was just saying something. She actually knows him. It's a different thing, and it matters. It is a significant thing. This is what Paul's saying here. It is a significant thing that God, the God of the universe, knows you. That is a significant truth. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are known by God. And if you're in Christ Jesus, it's because you are known by God. How many of us Spend energy trying and trying to keep other people from seeing or knowing certain things about us, about who we really are. And why do we do that? We do it because we want to be accepted, we want to be loved. And we know or, or we fear that if others knew certain things about us, the parts that we don't like about ourselves, then they may not like us at all. That they won't accept us. That they won't love us. Paul is saying here, God knows you. If you're in Christ, then you are known by God, and He is not, and He was not repulsed by you. You are loved. In fact, He chose you. He set His love on you. Even when you were at your worst, He loved you.
Paul writes to the Romans, God demonstrates or He shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, when we were at our very worst, Christ died for us. These Galatians, Paul's saying, have come to know God because God knew them first. He knew them because He loved them and graciously chose them to be His own. N.T. Wright comments here, this is one of the most momentous statements anywhere in Paul. Knowing God is central to the aspirations and longings of many peoples in many cultures. Paul claims that the Galatians have been brought to this very position neither by engaging in mystical practices, nor by lengthy ascetic disciplines, nor by studying complex texts, but because the one God had known them. And so Paul, in response to this truth, says, how could you return? How could you go back? How could you leave the knowing and loving God for what you lived for before. They're on the brink of returning to what is weak and impoverished. They're about to return to what is nothing at all, Paul's writing. What can give them no help, what cannot save them, what could not save them, Consider this truth that Paul is saying, this idea of being known by God. We ought to ask ourselves, we ought to truly ask ourselves, what is the value of that? What is the value of being known and loved by God? The psalmist in Psalm 16 verses 1 and 2 writes this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What's the value of being known by that God? Or the psalmist in Psalm 73 verses 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What is the value of being known and loved by that God? It's what the Galatians and we should have been thinking and saying, but they're not. Knowing the greatness of the one true gospel that God sent forth His Son to redeem them, from under the law and adopt them as his own. They're turning away from the gospel to the law, to the very thing Jesus died to free them from. And again, this is a picture of Exodus. You remember how the Israelites were constantly tempted to go back to Egypt. God had freed them, literally delivered them from the worst situation in Egypt and showed them how powerful and trustworthy He was. And yet, every time they got into a difficult situation, they would want to go back to Egypt. 
as if slavery was less demanding than freedom. Now Paul's placing the Galatian Jesus followers in the same position. He's saying, how can this be? And for us as well, being set free from slavery to things that could never free us, could never truly satisfy us, being loved and known by God now, why would we ever go back to the things that bound us, that enslaved us? Notice here in the text that Paul is equating subjection to the Torah, to the Mosaic law with paganism. Imagine being the Galatians, and even more so, imagine being these rival teachers or the Jewish uh, influencers of these rival teachers. Imagine being here, them hearing that. Equating what you're teaching and what you're believing with paganism. But Paul is clear, you either have God who you know as Father and who sends forth the Son to redeem you from your sins and set you free? Or you have these non-gods of the Gentiles? And he's saying, do you really want to go back? Do you want to go back to slavery? Do you really want the chains that were removed to be placed on you again? For Paul, this move from idolatry to Christianity and now to Judaism is no different than a venture back into idolatry or paganism. He continues in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now what matters to Paul, and he says this clearly at the end of the letter as we, as we work our way there, is the new creation. We are a new Creation in Christ. We are, if we know God and are known by God, His new creation. The old is gone and behold, the new has come. And those things that are attached to the old life are gone. Crucified with Christ. We're a new creation and therefore the Galatians and these Old observances of the Jewish festivals and the things he lists here should not be attractive to them in any way. They've seen grace. They've seen Jesus. Think about this. God has, has made them his own. He's made them a part of Abraham's family, the new creation of God. And they're whole now. They're free now. They're loved now. And they are, just as we are, approaching the fulfillment and consummation of the kingdom of God that is coming. And they and we will be a part of that forever. And yet, they want to turn back. It's, it's exactly like the Israelites. This is a story of Exodus. Paul's saying that is not how new creation acts. It's like Lot's wife looking back longingly for what God was delivering them from, which was destruction. It's a hopeless thing. And yet here the Galatians are. They're beginning to observe the Old Testament 
calendar. Notice again that Paul refers to that as the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Again, he's not saying that there is no good in the Mosaic law. He's not saying that. God gave the Mosaic law and it served its purpose and Jesus came and fulfilled it, the very thing we could never, ever do. We could never live in accordance to the law. But Jesus did. He accomplished what it was always meant to accomplish. It was an arrow. It pointed to Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the maker of the only way to God. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so how does Paul respond? Verse 11 I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's concerned, right? He's, he's wondering here out loud. I may have labored over you in vain. Now, what does he mean? There's no hope in the Mosaic law to save them. Only Christ can do that. And if they are walking away from hope in Christ to observe festivals and days and months and seasons and years for what? In hope that God will accept them based on their service rather than on the work of Christ. If they're doing that, trying now to live in a way that will somehow get God's attention for how good or well-behaved they are in somehow hoping that they can be good enough to make it to heaven when they know the truth that there's no way other than what Christ has done. Only Jesus lived a life good enough to get to heaven and He offers us forgiveness. If they're doing that, if they're no longer hoping in the gospel, then Paul is afraid that his time among them was in vain, that it was wasted. Now, why would it be wasted? Because they didn't persevere. They didn't continue in the gospel. And that's one of the things I want us to focus on as we come to the end of the sermon today, is perseverance. Those who are known by God will persevere. I didn't say that they would live perfect lives, that they would be perfect. Not yet. Lives will be messy. And faith will sometimes look like someone doesn't know God. But they will keep going. If they know God, if they are known by God, they will keep going. They will keep going. I've asked this a few times throughout this series. How can we know? How can we know that we are truly a part of Abraham's family? How can we know that we're truly saved? And this is the ultimate answer to that question. You will persevere. Don't hear me wrong. That doesn't mean you won't fail. It doesn't mean you won't doubt. We all struggle with doubts and failure and sin and 
fear and all of those things. We all struggle with that. If you will make it to the end. There may be days that are dark. There may be days that are hard. There may be trouble and tribulation and doubt and all of those things. But you will make it. You will persevere. You'll make it all the way to Jesus. You will keep believing. You will continue in faith. Why? Because God knows you. Because God loves you. Because God holds you. I want to read to you the words of Jesus, and it's a longer text, and so just listen. I'll confess to you, we are, we're all prone in moments like this. Someone's reading. We want to engage. We want to hear the words of Jesus. It, we're all prone to having thoughts pop into our heads and, and all of that. Let's, let's lean in mentally and listen to the words of Jesus here in John chapter 10. Truly, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There's again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. 
And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to, them, to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one, not a single person will snatch you out of His hands. Not even you can do that. And we might ask, but what about people that we've known, we, we see, who seem to believe, but then they renounce faith. They don't live for Jesus or trust in Him any longer. Did Jesus, did Jesus lie here? And the answer to that is no. John writes in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might complain that they all are not of us. What Paul and what Jesus and John 10 are saying is, if those who are known by God, if you are known by God, you'll make it. You will persevere. And here's why, again, it's because you're not holding God. You're not even holding on to God. God is holding you, that is our hope. Jude verses 24 and 25 are so wonderful. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. This is something we do each week. Imagine again for a moment the thought, the truth that you are known by God and that Jesus is holding you, that Jesus is able to present you blameless before the Father. What joy is there in knowing that? One of the wonderful things about taking the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup each week, is the fellowship that it represents and it allows. Fellowship with one another because we are, as Paul says, proclaiming to one another and together that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as he writes... In 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But in 1 Corinthians 10, He highlights another blessing of taking the bread and the cup together, and that's participation. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that word participation in the Greek is the same word we get the word fellowship from. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2 when it says that the disciples devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. To fellowship. And so Paul's writing there in, in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a unique fellowship. Fellowship with one another and fellowship with Jesus each and every time we take the bread and we take the cup. And it's purposeful. It's fellowship with the one who knows you and loves you and holds you. But in knowing that and in seeing what the scriptures say to that, I want to encourage you, if you're here, maybe you've been here for years and years and years, and, and you would say, I don't, I don't believe this, or I don't really have a, a relationship with Jesus yet, at least. Our encouragement in this, taking the bread and taking the cup, is that it just as people are dismissed to go, that you just kind of hang there. And, and here's why. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. When we take the bread and we take the cup together, what, what the Bible tells us and what the Lord tells us is, we're literally together saying we believe in the gospel of Jesus. We believe that Jesus' body was broken for us. We believe that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and so my encouragement to you is if you don't yet believe that, then really you, you probably wouldn't even want to join in rejoicing with us over news that you don't love. But here's what I would encourage you to do, is that you would consider the words of Jesus, who says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all of you who are burdened, all of you who are broken. And Jesus says this, I will give you rest. And the good news of the gospel is that rest comes through forgiveness of your sins. There's not a single person in this room who could say, I've never done anything wrong. There's not a single person in this room who could say, I haven't sinned today. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. And Jesus says, come. And so today I would encourage you to consider Jesus. And rather than partaking of the symbols, and that's all this is, there's nothing magical in taking the bread and taking the cup. There's symbols. Symbols of what he did. Rather than taking of those symbols, partaking of the symbols, partake of Jesus today. May he be glorified in us as we partake of the bread and the cup, remembering his love and embracing the gospel. You're going to be dismissed row by row. Just come to the table, receive the bread and cup, and go back to your seat, and we'll take it together after we sing. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. You're good and you do good. Your word is truth. We're so grateful, Lord. 
We just ask that you would help us to believe. Help us, Lord, to believe. To believe your goodness, to believe your mercy, to trust in your name, to really understand and know what you did, Lord. Jesus, that you came to this earth and you lived the life that we could never live, perfect, holy, set apart, good. And that you were treated as a trespasser, as a terrorist. And that you suffered and you died, but you did it on purpose. You died to bear the weight of our sin before God. To be punished for our sin. And then in death, you were raised to life. Proof that God had accepted your sacrifice for our sins. And a promise that if we trust in you, we believe in you, that we too will live with you forever. And so we praise you and we thank you and we ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen.